everyone. Welcome to the Developmenter Podcast. You know, the train just keeps rolling on here with all the great interviews we've been having with people across a whole variety of roles in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll, and if you're just joining us for the first time, a special welcome to you. We have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight all the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path in technology. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. Today's guest is a long-standing thought leader in the tech space and a tech industry analyst, having built a 12-plus year career with one of the world's leading tech research firms. Before that, he started and built up not one, but two software companies, as well as done a five-year stint at Bank of America in their architecture group. We're rolling on 40-some episodes these days, and I also think it's the first time we've had someone on in the role of tech industry analyst, so I'm quite excited to dig in with him. With that, please welcome to the show, Mike Gualtieri. Mike, great to have you here. Thank you, Grant. Good to be here. Mike, you know, I'm, I'm especially appreciative of you taking the, the time to join me here because, you know, I think for so many years in, in my role, I've been on the other side of being interviewed by folks like you. So uh, why don't we just start off with you filling in our listeners on a quick overview of your career, kind of the, the highlights that you've had to date. Sure. Yeah. So I've always been interested in, in technology and sort of self-taught myself uh, to be a programmer assembly language, basic, way, way back in the day, Pascal, Java. So, you know, I would say my core career has probably been focused on software development, software architecture. But as you pointed out, the last 12 years have been not as a practitioner, but as a industry analyst, which I sometimes call a technology analyst at uh, Forrester Research. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, and I really want to dig into that analyst position because it, it is a truly unique position in, in the industry. You know, as we were talking beforehand, there's not actually a lot of them out there. But before I do that, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit of some of these founding stories. You know, you said you got your start back in assembly. I mean, most people don't do assembly these days. So I'm kind of curious, you you, uh, I believe, went to school for computer science and then, and then launched a, a couple of different companies. I'd love to hear kind of the backstory on how you got your start here. I guess you could say my career actually started before college because there was a company, maybe you've heard of it, Wang Laboratories? Oh, yeah. Yep. Wang, the Wang word processor. This was a, became a very large company. Um, and it was sort of in, the, in that same era with DEC, digital equipment, data general, et cetera. So, Back then, you actually didn't have too many programming languages. Uh, you had programming languages like Pascal emerging, but if you really wanted to get to write software that was very highest possible performance, you had to do assembly language. So I worked summers, essentially, at Wang Laboratories, and that's where I, I became self-taught in the programming. By the time I got to college, I loved technology, but I also loved math, science, history. I, I loved all of the all of the subjects. And while in college, because I didn't have to take all the computer science classes, there was some flexibility there. I ended up taking a lot of technology and innovation management uh, classes, which was also fascinating to me as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you hit on a couple of companies that I think are maybe our, our modern listener hasn't even heard of necessarily, but in, in many ways, they really built 
the foundation of, of where we're all at these days, right? In, in terms of taking and making the personal computer available to many of us. I mean, what was that like kind of in the, that early days of, of starting off your own company, right? Because I, I believe you, you, you launched and ran something on your own for quite some time there, right? Yeah, well, at the time, you know, software development, it, it was hard to come by software engineers and, and software developers. Uh, so, so I actually launched a, a consulting company. Uh, initially, I, I would develop systems that you would never think of developing today for, for companies like accounting systems and billing systems. Because uh, at that time, they weren't really packaged apps like there are now. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, a small company couldn't buy QuickBooks. So they'd actually hire developers to actually develop that for them. So uh, things like that, but um, also got into developing warehouse management and logistic transportation systems. And that was more of a traditional software company as well. But the whole basis for that was actually uh, artificial intelligence, which at the time was focused on a technique of artificial intelligence called expert systems. So, and, and this is sort of out of sequence in the story, but that's where I find myself now as a technology analyst covering artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah. So things have circled, circled <laughs> back to that. It's, it's come full circle. I'm, I'm still waiting yeah. for Pascal to be back in vogue <laughs> as a programming language too, because yeah. that, that's the one I learned first <laughs> as well. Do you use Turbo Pascal? Uh, I did right, and, and yeah, well, and yeah. a variety of them. But uh, I think we even I even started on some of the old deck machines as well. So I, yeah. I, th oh, yeah. I think I think we're dating ourselves just a little. I know. Bit here, I know. Mike, we better but... we better fast forward. <laughs> we, yeah, we better fast forward pretty quick here. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for that early, especially learning kind of this this really low level stuff like assembly. You get a real appreciation for. Oh yeah how the computer works. You know, I mentioned you, you did a stint in finance and, you know, the finance mm -hmm. industry is one of the biggest employers of tech in the world. And, and you spent five years there doing architecture. And I know when I first encountered folks in architecture at a bank, I kind of was like, hey, what do you all do? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it was a lot of boxes on the, the whiteboard. And, and I know there's much deeper aspects of that. So kind of, can you pull back the curtain a little bit? What does, an architecture group at a bank typically do or, or in general at other companies? Yeah, well, banks, large banks, any large organization, whether it's manufacturing, media, just telecom, just, you know, pick an industry, the complexity of their systems is huge. I mean, if you, if you ask a, a, a bank CIO, you say, oh, how many applications do you have? And when I say applications, I mean unique piece of software that does some function. You know, whether it's uh, billing or human resources or accounting, whatever it is, they're, they're going to say we have 800 applications. They're going to say we have 3,000 applications. That's an awful lot of complexity. Yeah. And then if you then think, and, and how did they get there? Well, some of it's organic, right? They bought this software to do this. They bought this software to do this. Um, in the case of a bank like uh, Bank of America, or any other bank for that matter, they grew through acquisitions. So you inherit that. Um, so as an architect, you're dealing with that complexity and when you need something new, a new application that, that needs to communicate and work in that environment, what's the best way to do it? So, you know, that's the best way 
I think, to explain what an architect does. They understand the complexity, and then they make they help make decisions about how to incorporate uh, new technology. One of the big activities that that architects often do is they quote unquote rationalize the architecture, and that's yeah. often common when you buy another company. And there's overlap in systems. Which systems do you keep? Which systems do you get rid of? How do you integrate it? So, you know, I would say it's dealing with complexity. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, and, and this is obviously then a role that you grow into, right? And I imagine then all that experience you had leading up to that of actually writing these systems, integrating them in, I mean, that, that makes you particularly well suited. In other words, this is not a position you just, you don't get a degree in computer or being a, an architect at a company, right? You work your way up through engineering first. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that can be helpful. I don't think it's, I, I think there's other paths uh, hmm. to understanding uh, that, that complexity, but often today the education that people have in computer science is so narrow and people's first jobs are the scope of their first technology job is so narrow that it's often very hard for them to get, you know, a complete view of that complexity to even get a handle on it. Yeah. Because if you think about, you know, IT software engineering groups are huge within organizations and your first job is going to be probably really focused in the weeds somewhere. And so, you know, to, to be an effective architect, an enterprise architect. You have to be able to go up a level, up many, many levels, but it's also helpful to go down in the weeds. I often, you know, give advice. It's like, okay, you have to oscillate your thinking between top down and bottom up. And that's where you'll find the solution set. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, one of the best ways you can do that, one of the things that really helped me in my career is I had a couple of jobs early on where I got to go be across a lot of different projects, right? And it, and it sounds like you had kind of a similar experience where you got to go implement a lot of different systems and and that can really help. I'm curious to pull a little bit more on that thread of, of the current state of the education system, if you will, around computer science as being narrow. How do you see it as narrow or like what parts do you think are like should be expanded or added to or if, you know, if somebody is listening to this as a recent computer science grad, what, what kinds of things should they look to add to their repertoire, if you will? Well, I think, uh, and, and I, that probably we're in a lot of agreement over uh, how much flexibility. You know, that would be my, my key advice. Because if you look at the arc of technology, not just over 20 years, but even five years or even three, you will see the programming language that people absolutely think is the future of all programming uh, is no longer that absolute future of programming, right? There's new yeah. programming languages, there's new frameworks, there's new tools. So more than anything else, you have to, you have to jump and be able to learn all of these different things if you want to maximize the flexibility in your career. But an educational system usually will lag that. Know, they'll la they'll be somewhat lagging in that so it's not the particular absolute skill or programming language you're learning today but it's being able to quickly learn other languages and, and frameworks uh, tomorrow yeah it's that proverbial learning how to learn or, or yeah. lear learning how to think aspect that is actually the critical piece or at least learning how you learn right I, I think yeah that's better yeah 
Yeah. You know, let's, let's jump in then on the tech industry analysts and perhaps just start off again. Like, like we said up front is this is not necessarily that well known of, or there's not that many of these positions out there. It's perhaps something that a lot of our listeners aren't even aware really exists. Right. Cause it's, you know, the industry is so focused on, on writing code, you know, what's your day-to-day look like? What is the the big picture here on what a tech industry analyst does? Yeah, and I I think you have to understand why this, you know, why this industry exists. It's a small industry, but but I think it has an outsized influence in tech. So you've got firms like Forrester Research that I work for, Gartner, IDC, 451, uh, so there's a long tail of, of smaller research firms. I, I would say the Forrester, Gartner, IDC are, are by far the largest. But essentially what we do is we help technology leaders make decisions. And sometimes these decisions are very complicated. What type of decisions? Well, sometimes it's about what software to buy right, for their needs. Sometimes it's about, well, what's the best practice? Sometimes it's about, well, what are, you know, what are some of the current trends and, and strategies in the market? So one way to make this absolutely real is that uh, Forrester, we create what's known as the Forrester wave. Gartner has something called the magic quadrant. And that's where we evaluate products given criteria and we show where they sit. So, you know, if someone on the street says, what do you do? I'll say, oh, do you know consumer reports? Do you know how they mm-hmm. evaluate refrigerators and cars? and they have criteria to do that. I do that, but I do that for highly complicated technology products, such as machine learning platforms. Yeah, well, that's a great analogy. I think uh, in terms of relating it to consumer reports or some of these other ones, uh, you know, I really wanna dive into that because I think you're in a really interesting role there of, you know, you've gotta make sense, like you said, of these highly complicated systems. Right. So kind of how do you do that? Like, what's that next layer down in terms of your day to day? Like, you know, are you most of your time in meetings? Do you get time to play with the software? Like, you know, how how does that? Yeah. Uh, um, And that and that really does get back to the day to day because, um, you know, our clients are large technology buyers, large banks, telecoms, governments. Uh, Just just think of, you know, any large company, they will subscribe to what we do or to what one of our competitors does. We take what we call inquiries from these people. These are questions that they have. Usually it's a 30 minute phone call, sometimes it's longer. So the first thing I am trying to do is under, I'm trying to provide answers, but I'm also trying to understand what is important to these companies, what's important in the software category for them. I also talk to all the vendors you know, in the areas that I cover as well. So, you know, to be clear, you know, a firm might have a couple hundred analysts all covering different aspects of of technology and sometimes not even technology. Sometimes it's customer experience, for example. Uh, So I am trying to understand what buyers want. I am trying to understand what vendors offer and then trying to match those up in, in a research piece, in a report. Uh, that will make sense to both. That makes sense. That looks fair to vendors, right? Because we are evaluating them. Mm-hmm. Has to look fair, and has to make sense to buyers that that's meeting their needs. And I'm evaluating the criteria that's most important to them. Yeah, and I imagine I, I've been on the vendor side. You know, I've, I've yeah. 
I've done the, the briefings and, you know, given the demos to Forrester and Gardner and, and all the yeah. other. It's a pretty interesting piece right here because, you know, like you said, you, you have this outsized role in that a lot of a lot of big companies look to the foresters of the world as as the cheat sheet of hey give me the give me the top 3 that i can then go drill in on right they're not right. necessarily making the final decision off of what you say but they're they're drilling in and saying all right you know i'm not even going to bother with the rest of the field because you know i i want the top uh, and mm-hmm. so you've got to kind of cut through you know to put it nicely you have to cut through a lot of noise Right. Mm-hmm. How do you go about really doing that? You know, I mean, I imagine your your BS detector has to be pretty good at this point in time. Yes. Yes, it's uh, it is very good. But it doesn't have to be that good because, you know, as you pointed out, a, a lot of product managers are, are have been on that other side. Right. Yeah. In other words, giving briefings and stuff. So you kind of know you can't really you, you can't try to pull a fast one. Right. Uh, very, very easily. So I think there's a lot of respect both ways, you know, from the, from the sure. vendor people who are interacting with analysts and, and analysts. Now, having said that, analysts come from different backgrounds in terms of their depth of understanding for technology. Uh, my background, which I told you started with assembly yeah. language, tends to pull me, I tend to gravitate towards the most technical of topics mm. uh, because I can handle those. That's been very, very helpful in my career is just to understand many layers down what's possible. Well, I'll give you an example because in a lot of the platforms I cover, performance and scale are very important right. criteria. How fast is this or how much can this scale? And we don't do benchmarks. That can be a very large project to set up and do a technical benchmark. I don't accept benchmarks from a vendor for obvious reasons. Mm. So how do I evaluate scale and performance? Well, I do that by asking the vendor, well, what are the design maxims that you employ to achieve low latency or to achieve scale? If I'm looking at 10 vendors, I can hear from them what their, what their architectural design maxims are, and then I can sort of line, stack them up, line them up. Well, well this is going to be more scalable because of this. That's what becomes very valuable in my practitioner experience. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I think, you know, that kind of leads to a natural follow-up, which is, you know, I I imagine there's this part, you have to spend at least part of your time, you know, quote unquote, staying technical and, you know, understanding some of the real subtleties of how the computer works, how the modern scalable architecture works. You know, how do you approach that side of the equation. Obviously, you don't have time to go write code all day long, per se, mm-hmm. but, but you still kind of need to be aware of what are the low-level decisions. Uh, does that just come naturally from these conversations, or do you, do you take and set aside specific time for that staying technical piece? It mostly comes natural. I'd say most of it comes from the wave process, doing wave, like evaluating vendors, because now you're really focused on it. And then occasionally, like if there's a new area, like like uh, last year, all of a sudden there were AI chips, right? So, so these weren't just CPUs, but people are talking about GPUs. Why are people talking about GPUs? What, what, you know, when it comes to deep learning? So I had to dig a little bit deeper 
to investigate that. And now there's other chips and there's ASICs and why are people using FPGAs? So when something new pops up that I'm not as familiar with, like the semiconductor industry, I'll have to go a little bit deeper. I'll interview experts. And, and by the way, this is like one of the best jobs in the world for me, <laughs> just because yeah. of the, the level of access I have to CEOs of very large tech companies, CTOs, just the, the access that, that analysts have is, is amazing. So a lot of learning just comes with the job. Yeah, I imagine. And actually, that's a really interesting observation there, because I imagine there's a chunk of this job that is all about relationship building too, right? It's, it's not just about the tech. So perhaps reflect a little bit on, on the, that side of, of your brain, if you will, in terms of engaging with people. You know, you've got, you've got to kind of maintain an appropriate level of professional distance, but you also have to develop these relationships. You know, how do you approach that side of it? Yeah, the most important thing from my perspective as, as an analyst is to be seen as an objective market observer for the vendors. You cannot be. Right. Analyst firms, if analyst firms were perceived as being in the tank for any particular vendor, you don't have a business. Yeah, for right? sure. So, so you have to, you know, more than anything else, you have to be objective and as fair as possible when you're evaluating and trying to understand what these different technologies are, because buyers are going to also rely on uh, some of our analysis as input. So that's very important. But most of the companies, they seek analysts that cover what they do. They seek them out and they have relationships with the firm. So if there's ever a large company, and just think of any large cloud company, any large tech company, that I want to talk to for any reason, I can do that, but I don't, I never have to. <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're always getting to me first. They're always saying, Hey, Mike, we've got this new machine learning thing that's coming out. Uh, we want to do a briefing. We want, we want to talk to you about it. So, so it's a very, it's an industry that where all of these relationships exist. And I don't know if you, whatever company you were at where you dealt with analysts, but many of these companies have, an entire professional group of analyst relations professionals. These are AR pros. So large company will hire these people and their goal is to, is to foster those relationships, provide access where needed about the product. So in the large, largest of companies, this AR professional, that's the role they have. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great point, Mike, because I know at my, I was at LucidWorks, which does search and machine learning and places yep. like that. And uh, we went through that transition of hiring an AR. And, and then actually, that's a good point here. So if somebody's interested in this field and we, you know, as we said up front, there's not a ton of uh, the, just the analyst positions like yours available. There, there are obviously some, but another way to be kind of joined with this analyst. In the industry. Yeah, is yeah. is to be in this analyst role, and and I, I imagine it has much the same traits as an analyst, and in, in that you have to be able to tell the story. You're you're kind of on the flip side of the relationship, but it it's still you need to have an understanding of of what someone like you goes through day to day. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very so sometimes people confuse what we do with the press. Yeah, <laughs> um, and if you and if you treat an analyst like a press, you're you're totally missing the point because we're we're not trying to report on news right on tech news. that's absolutely not what we do so tech journalists which 
I suppose another way to get into this, you know, they have deadlines like every day or every couple of days. The research reports we write are, you know, have sort of a quarterly cadence. And, right. and, are, and are much, it's not about reporting what's happening. What they want from us is what do we think it means for them? Gotcha. Um, so. Yeah, no, that's really great. So, you know, you mentioned AI and machine learning and that a few times. And so let's dig in here a little bit because, you know, this is obviously a really hot space. I imagine a lot of our listeners are into that space. It's part of my background. There's obviously also a lot of hype. You know, what's the kind of the current state of how you you look at that space, how you got involved in it? Fill us in a bit on, on kind of the, your hot take, if you will. Well, this was also hot. This was a hot topic in the early 80s when I was yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in college. But we didn't have a lot of data. We didn't have as much compute power. Uh, we didn't have all the techniques that we have now. Fast forward to the last few years, I would call 2012 a, a pivotal moment because of deep learning algorithms. Yep. So all of a sudden, you know, companies were very interested in what AI can do expand it. There's vendors out there. There's a big startup landscape. I cover way more than 100 vendors. I do wait, I do three waves that have, you know, about 10, 12, 15 vendors each in them. Wow. Uh, so some, sometimes there's a trend that just sort of, you know, takes off. But look, this is comparable to mobile, right? Yeah. You know, so a few years ago, we would just be talking mobile, mobile, mobile. Or maybe in the early 90s, we've been talking SOA service-oriented architecture yep. or so so sometimes there's something so new and looks so valuable that it becomes a big trend and i think uh, that's that's why we're talking about ai and i think it's real part of what we do is we make a call is this real is it not real is it ready for prime time and in the ai space a lot of that has to do with helping people adjust their expectations of what it is and what it isn't that's right. getting a lot easier now that companies are sort of rolling out solutions and, and have case studies on, on the value. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that makes sense. And, and you know, you, you mentioned like this space is, is really changing a lot. Kind of, you know, for our listeners who are like perhaps thinking, hey, I want to get in a, a bit more on the AI space. We're recording this at the end of yeah. 2019. What are kind of the, some of the, a couple of the key trends there that, that well, folks are me, looking for? Yeah, let me, I'll say three things. Like, for your listeners, like who maybe are interested in getting into it, getting into AI and machine learning. Number one, it's not that hard. It's not as hard as people make it out to be. For sure. Uh, to create a, to create a machine learning model, and probably the the worst advice I could ever give someone is to go take an online class on how algorithms work. That is not a good way to approach that. And the reason for that is that a lot of the academic courses on machine learning, not all, but they focus on, well, how does the gradient boosted machine work? Right? Yeah. And people who are successful in machine learning don't need to know how it works. They use it as a tool. Right? So, you know, the way you should think about the machine learning algorithms is, you know, like if you have a toolbox, and you have a vice grip, you don't have to know how the iron was forged and how it was made. <laughs> you can use that vice grip for a lot of use cases. So that, you know, so, that, so it's not as hard because you don't actually have to understand how a CNN works or any of these technical terms. You just have to know how to apply it. And then the second thing 
is that machine learning is often about making a prediction. So it's all, it's pretty easy to, to find use cases uh, if you make a prediction. And then the third thing, which is more to what your question was, well, what are the trends uh, that are going to be big for next year? There's two. One is called AutoML. And AutoML even further simplifies the process of creating a model. Because in machine learning, typically there's multiple algorithms that you want to try. Uh, it will try them all. It will create data that, that may be, create data from your data to make it more successful. So AutoML, and you're seeing this from Google and Amazon and Microsoft and SaaS and, and many vendors, uh, this is going to make it more accessible to more people. It's also going to make it more productive for data scientists. And then the, the other hot trend is what we call model ops. It's uh, sort of a parallel to DevOps. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's so hot is it's because, all right, well, we've done POCs. We've done a couple of successful deployments, but how do we go from, you know, a, a couple of wins to actually rolling out a dozen, a hundred use cases? And, and for that, you need the discipline of model ops to get AI into the applications. It sounds like I found my next guest here. I need to find somebody in the model ops. I think that's so true because I've seen a lot of this too of people just struggle getting this stuff to production, right? They they do this yeah. cool demo on, you know, their data, you know, their data science does this cool demo and it's like, okay, well now what? Right. Um, so yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, there's a lot of, I, I think really good advice in there uh, for our listeners. I, I, I look at it as like this next generation of developers are going to be AI native, right? Just like the last generation were web native or, or things like yeah. that. And, and so you just always have this function available to you that says, hey, here's what we think of this data. Here's how important we think it is. And the sooner you can get used to that as a developer, the more successful you're going to be, right? Agreed. Yeah, I think that I, I like the way you put that too. Like they'll just be be AI natives. They yeah. aren't now, but but you can actually I can see it happening. Yeah, right? and you don't so, you don't need to know the math. I mean, you know, if you want to develop right. a new algorithm or some some innovative thing, great, go study that. And there's a there's a real right. career for those people, and they're yep, in absolutely. huge demand. But the rest of us just need to kind of consume it, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and you know, there's there's so many parallels too. It's like well, you know, you can learn Python without understanding the Python interpreter um, yeah, or, you know, sure. byte code that something may generate. And <laughs> so, um, and I think the parallel of machine learning is, is there as well. Yeah. But yeah, but there's totally, like you said, there's total careers in <laughs> doing the low level stuff as well. For sure. You know, Mike, I want to, I want to get you on with your day here. And, and, you know, one of the questions I love to ask my guests is, you know, not all aspects of one's job or career is, you know, the proverbial peanut butter and chocolate going together, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, perhaps reflect, you know, what's the best part of the gig and what's the worst or the hardest, if you will? I, I don't always like to frame it as worst, but most challenging part of mm -hmm. the gig, maybe one of each. Well, the, so the, the best part um, is being part of the access that I have and the conversations that I have with the movers and shakers and in and, and, and the big in big technology companies and, and startups and the leadership of, of major companies. So it's just it's fascinating uh, to be part of that. I love that part of it. In terms of the mechanical aspects of the job, I love giving conference speeches. That's hmm. very rewarding to me in multiple ways. In preparing for it, <laughs> in the way you have to communicate 
so really, really enjoy that. There, there's a lot of time on the road in this yeah. job, you know, as well. <laughs> I imagine. Sort of the hardest, the hardest part of this is um, uh, this is a multifaceted job. So we do have to publish uh, research reports. We do have to do waves and evaluation. So the most challenging part is balancing all of those things. And, you know, it's probably like any job, very, very difficult, you know, 12 years ago uh, when I started, but now it's much more manageable, uh, but there's just a lot of time pressures, uh, like, like there are in many jobs. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's in some ways it's publish or perish, just like uh, academia in that way, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, then kind of a couple of final questions here of, you know, if, if someone's really looking to go down this path of, of being a tech industry, you know, what advice would you give them? Or perhaps, you know, what advice would, did you wish you had when you started down this path 12 years ago? Well, the advice that I will convey uh, uh, to your listeners, if they're interested in this type of role, first and foremost, it's a communication role. You have to be able to communicate effectively. Uh, and that often means taking some very complicated ideas and, and, and simplifying them, explaining them that they make sense. Because sometimes the questions you're getting are about very, very complicated things. And, and the reason why they're coming, the reason why I'm getting questions is because they've exhausted Google searches. <laughs> they can't find the answer in, in, in Google. So you have to be a, a really good communicator. And that's also written written communication too, because you have to be able to, you know, write, write these reports in a, in a very concise way. So uh, that's, that's critically important communication. Yeah, that's so great. And I mean, I think that, you know, is one of the running themes on this show. And I, and I know it's been a huge part of my career as well. You know, you, mm -hmm. you can code all day, but if you can't communicate about what you're doing, then, you know, it's the proverbial tree falling in the woods. Yep. Yeah, and that and that's especially true for uh, you know analysts, I believe. <laughs> yeah, for sure, I imagine. You know, so perhaps what are what are one or two resources that have kind of helped you along your path here? You know, a book, a podcast, maybe something we could point our listeners at and say, hey, you know, this is this is a place to start. Um, Anything I mean, come to mind? No, I mean, I no, because I've read uh, a lot of books uh, along the way. Uh, but one thing I would I would say is listening to other people, uh, especially that's outside of your domain, because I think that to maximize your flexibility, you have to be somewhat of a polymath mm. um, and and understand the workings of business and not just technology. And and I, everyone's going to say that, right? Like you you have to understand the business as well. But it is really true. You really do have to understand the workings of business and especially uh, the motivations of, of the people running those businesses as well, because then that tells you what they're interested in, how you can help them. And if, if you're providing a service that can help them, well, now you've created, you've created value. Yeah. So business understanding, that's really important. Yeah, I know for sure. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, you, you, you hit it on the head in that, a lot of people say it, and yet there's still this gap. I mean, I see this every day in the across the a wide number of engineers that I work with of just like, oh, hey, I'm I'm just here for the tech. I don't care about the business, and yeah. 
and they're it, it's like let me just put a big restrictor on your career <laughs> right yeah because yeah. you're not going to be aligned with the value and when the org shifts you're going to be caught right yeah yeah and i and i think it's you know it's also good for people to think well what do you want to do from a people person as well like do you want to manage teams or do you want to be an individual contributor? I think there's a lot of opportunity for both. For sure. um, so, you know, as an analyst, I'm not managing a group of 50 developers or anything. You know, I'm, I'm an individual contributor, but I'm, but I feel like I'm contributing at a very high level. The, you know, the tech leaders and the business leaders rely on some of the information I provide to make those decisions. So you have to figure out, I think, you know, in, in most cases you have to deal with people, but in, in, in what, how do you want to interact with them. Do you want to be a manager or do you want to be uh, an individual contributor? Like I said, I think there's great opportunities for both in this world. Yeah, so true. And I think, uh, you know, to put it as I think one of my prior guests, uh, Duretti, said, I think in episode 14, you know, tech is a team sport, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and you hit right on that. Hey, Mike, you know, where can our listeners best follow you, learn from you, get more advice on, you know, kind of all things tech, uh, you know, to kind of wrap things up here? Yeah, sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is M Gualtieri. So that's M, my first name, Mike, and my last name, G-U-A-L-T-I-E-R-I. Same on LinkedIn. Uh, so from a social media standpoint, that's where that's where I'll do a lot of posting. But I would also direct people to Forrester.com, um, where you can look at a, a lot of Forrester's research. Some of it is, most of it, you have to subscribe to it. But some of the listeners may be subscribers. And if they are, that means they can also do an inquiry as well. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, Mike. I appreciate that. And for our listeners, of course, we will link all of those things in the show notes. You know, Mike, thanks again for joining me today. It was really great to have you on and, and really provide some of this insight into, you know, like you said, a, a role that isn't is perhaps well known by people outside of, of the inner circle of tech advice. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's really valuable. Yeah, much appreciated. You know, and, and on that note for our listeners, uh, you know, thank you also for taking the time. As always, if you like what we're doing here, we'd love for you to subscribe. That lets those podcast providers know that this is a show that people care about. And it, of course, then feeds back into me in terms of doing that work. We'd also love for you to visit us at developmentor.com. You can hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers in technology. Most importantly, if you like the show, please tell your friends. Uh, we all know referrals are really what moves the needle in the podcast world. So please do that. Last but not least, if you have any feedback on this episode or any episode, we'd really love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast@developmentor.com. Finally, finish up every episode. We here at Development are really hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path in technology.